Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Watson. And again, we have a really great show lined up for you. Um, in the past weeks, as you know, if you've been listening, which I hope you have, we've had some um, of the kind of the world's finest trailblazers on. We've had uh, transgender uh, pioneers in the area of uh, swimming. Uh, we've had pioneers in the area of skateboarding. And today, uh, we are going to be talking to the um, one of the stars of worldwide soccer, or as the rest of the world calls football. Um, uh, he is an LGBTQ trailblazer. Thomas Beatty um, is going to be our guest. And um, man, he is a dynamo. I mean, he is into a lot of stuff. He's an entrepreneur, and he has um, a, a new organization that has been established that uh, is, is out to be altruistic and help people, um, the uh, Thomas Beatty uh, Foundation, which um, uh, is carrying the cause forward for equality um, and uh, influencing, I think, other sports people. And we're going to find out a lot more about that. Um, first, though, I'm going to go to Brody Levesque. Brody, as you know, is the co-host of the show, but he is also the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can find that at losangelesblade.com. Surprise, surprise. And uh, that is the news magazine you need to be following. Uh, It is original news, not blog talk-ish. Pardon the expression since we're on blog talk. But uh, it isn't a blog. It is an actual news publication. And um, they have their pulse on the news of the day. And with that, let's check in. Hey, Brody. Hey, Rob. And hey to all of our listeners globally. So, yeah, this has been a month, a year. You know how the old expression goes. Uh, News uh, came out of a courtroom in Russia today. Uh, NBA, WNBA uh, basketball star Brittany Griner uh, was convicted and then sentenced to nine years uh, in a penal, uh, Russian penal facility, uh, which is considered a fairly harsh uh, sentence given uh, what Griner uh, was actually uh, guilty of, uh, the allegation that she smuggled drugs uh, into the country. It should be noted that the so-called drugs that the basketball star was smuggling were actually vape cartridges uh, that contained cannabis oil extract. However, under Russian law, that was considered uh, illegal. Um, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has previously acknowledged that the U.S. is undergoing negotiations with the Russian Federation to secure the release of Greiner, as well as Paul Whelan, who's another American citizen, a former Marine, uh, who was sentenced for a 16-year prison sentence for his conviction for spying. Um, American officials uh, have said that they are expressing a willingness to trade Greiner and Whelan for Victor Bolt, who is a Russian arms dealer who is currently serving a 25-year prison sentence in the United States. Uh, Today in the press briefing, uh, Kirby, uh, the national security advisor, uh, was asked by reporters about the situation. While he wouldn't uh, address the situation uh, directly, he did say that the United States found the entire situation with Griner, and I quote, reprehensible. Uh, And so that was the the feedback from... um, the White House this morning from the National Security Advisor. Uh, Moving back to the United States, um, we need to talk about Florida, and we need to talk about Florida's governor. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended a state prosecutor alleging that the prosecutor 
was guilty of misconduct for not enforcing Florida's abortion law. And further, uh, this particular prosecutor had also signed on with a, a group of other Florida officials uh, who were not going to prosecute uh, cases that had to do with providers giving medical care to transgender uh, children or minors. And so today, Florida's governor suspended him. Uh, he referred to him as a Soros-backed woke attorney who was refusing to, uh, you know, enforce Florida law on abortion and, of course, on transgender health care for minors. Um, DeSantis, in a press conference, he was in Tampa uh, at the time, flanked by police officers, and I quote Governor DeSantis, the prosecutor has put himself publicly above the law by signing letters and proclamations he would not enforce laws prohibiting gender-affirming care for minors or laws limiting abortion. Quoting the Florida governor, our government is a government of laws, not a government of men, DeSantis said. Uh, a former police chief who was president at the conference, uh, press conference, Tampa Bay uh, Chief Brian Dugan noted that the prosecutor was a fraud and it is a terrible day that the governor had to come and clean up the mess. Um, I should note that uh, police chiefs in Florida do, in fact, have a tendency for beating their chests and puffing themselves up uh, and highlighting, you know, media stunts. Uh, you know, this is fairly typical for them. Uh, matter of fact, one of the sheriffs, uh, Sheriff Grady over in Polk County, is infamous for his uh, press conferences on all of the different types of crimes that his deputies arrest on. It's almost a reality show in and of itself. So getting that kind of rhetoric being fed back by Florida law enforcement is actually pretty much normal. Monkeypox, shifting gears. Well, we need to talk about monkeypox, Rob. Uh, the Biden administration today declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Now, I should note, that the governors of Illinois, New York, and California had previously done that, and that Dr. Tedros, the director general of the World Health Organization, uh, had already previously declared the uh, monkeypox uh, outbreak as a public, a public health emergency concern. So uh, the declaration of the day from Health and Human Services uh, Secretary Javier Bathira uh, essentially is just a pile-on. Uh, to what everyone else is already doing. A couple of days ago, the president appointed uh, Robert Fenton from uh, FEMA as the White House National Monkeypox Response Coordinator. And uh, what the emergency to does today by this declaration by the White House, and I'm quoting the FEMA uh, gentleman, the public health emergency will allow us to explore additional strategies to get vaccines and treatments out more quickly into the affected communities, and it will get us more data from jurisdictions to, so we can effectively uh, track the suffering. Now, I need to note that monkeypox, and, and this is being stressed by the Centers for Disease Control, World Health, and others, this is not a sexually transmitted disease. Monkeypox is a contact virus. So that means if someone has it, and let's say that you are in a crowded area, and let's say you may be a club and you're shirtless and everybody's dancing, well, guess what? You rub up against someone who's got it, you're going to get it. You could get it from their bed clothing, from clothing. This is a pernicious type of viral outbreak, but it is not a sexually transmitted disease. Yes, there have been incidences recorded, a seminal analysis done by WHO that showed it did get transmitted that way, but that is not the primary or principal means of transmission. Now, granted, right now, the largest community affected by this are men having sex with men and transgender women, okay? That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay there, which is another reason that the health experts are banging gongs and raising the alarm, trying to get people to understand that, you know, this thing is pernicious and it's out there. One of the things that uh, is being stressed is what we call pot and pause. And what that simply means is, is you keep within a circle of group that you're going to have intimate relations with that do not have it as they try to get the vaccines out on the vaccine front. 
There is one vaccine that is highly effective, the Unos vaccine, which is manufactured by a company called Bavarian Nordic. Right now, with as many cases globally, they're trying to manufacture as much of the vaccine as possible. Like the COVID vaccine, it needs to be kept refrigerated. And there was a little bit of a supply chain issue because one of the facilities that was to be designated for storage was not approved by the FDA in time. However, that has since been rectified, and we're starting to see the vaccines flow. Um, according to what I'm being told by uh, the California Department of Public Health and the Los Angeles uh, Public Health people, is they're going to try and get these shots in the arms uh, as soon as possible. But vaccines are definitely in short supply. So um, I will join the course of the health experts just recommending everyone pod and pause. Rob? Great. Well, <laughs> that's a lot. And um, and meanwhile, while all this is going on, we've got that um, bizarre trial of Alex Jones and his horrendous um, libel that he's spread about the Sandy Hook massacre um, as well, right? Yeah, there's that. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. the thing that I find interesting about that, and I'll say this before we go to our guest, the defense, Jones' attorneys, committed probably one of the most grievous errors I could think of. They shipped the entire contents of Jones' phone to the to the to the plaintiff. Uh, and as a direct result of the disclosure of all the information contained, there are now federal prosecutors who want to look at that phone information. There are members of the January 6th committee uh, in Congress that want access to it, including House investigators. And now the U.S. Department of Justice has expressed an interest in the contents of the phone. So, um yeah, Mr. Conspiracy Theorist is probably going to find himself more than likely spending the next decade in and out of courtrooms, one can hope. But, uh, right. yeah, well, so that was the development what, that came out of the trial. Yeah, one thing is for sure, he does not know how to pick good lawyers. <laughs> that that, that is pretty bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, well, enough enough of that stuff. Let's, let's move on. Um, so today, our guest, um, again, we have, um, you know, a landmark and a trailblazer. Um, I want to welcome uh, Thomas Beatty to our show. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, you know, how you got started, your love of football. What, uh, well, you were pretty young when you got involved in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in England, so obviously it's kind of like a rite of passage almost. You know, you just kind of get forced into it when you're, you know, four, five, six years old. And it's it's kind of, to be honest, it's like a bit of escapism, especially when you come from um, certain areas within England. It's, you know, especially, um, I'll probably say, um, more, more of the humble industrial areas is, you know, really prominent. So I grew up at right. school just... You know, play, playing most sports, but yeah, football was the one that you know you kind of you kind of get forced into, and and I loved it from a really young age. I was very active uh, throughout most sports. Uh, but yeah, football was my my first true love, and I, I guess it still it always will be. I guess. And you appear to have really honed in on physical fitness and the the discipline required for to be an A-level athlete, how did, how did that happen? How did you avoid, you know, normal kid stuff of, you know, eating poorly and all that? Although I have to admit that's probably more of an American thing than because um, <laughs> you all eat much better uh, in Europe side than we do over here. But uh, how, how did that work for you? Yeah, no, no, I don't know. To be honest, we still, you come off from school when you're young and most kids get fed, you know, fish fingers, French fries and beans, it's not much better, I don't think. But, um, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, my, my family was very sporting. Um, and, uh, yeah, just the background and environment I was in, it was kind of you was going to be one version of yourself or another. Um, 
and so from a really young age, I, I didn't really have too many um, examples of of what I wanted to be, but I had a lot of examples of what I didn't want to be. So I typically just kind of veered away from a lot of the things that I felt would, you know, lead me to be in the same situation in, you know, 15, 20 years down the line. So, yeah, it was kind of, you know, I, I saw things I didn't want to be around and just kind of did the opposite, really. So from a young age, it became, yeah, it just became my life. And, and I even even now, so it's not, you know, it's not a switch I can turn on and off. It's a, it's a part of who I am. You know, it's not just something I do. So, yeah, I'm grateful for the, the characteristics and the, the traits I learned as an athlete. I think they will, you know, carry carry me for the rest of my life, I think. Yeah, it's uh, I I study a lot of the, you know, fitness stuff and, and follow a lot, and especially diet. And it's, it is, it's a lifestyle. It's not something you, you, have, you dabble in. And, and once you're eating that way and, and um, you know, it's part of your habit, it, it, it just becomes part of you, which is, is awesome. Um, as you were growing up, at what point were you becoming more and more aware of your internal sexuality and that it probably was not what everybody else was expecting you to be? Um. Well, I think from I think my story is a little bit different to you know when I speak to some of my other friends who are athletes or in the LGBTQ community, we always you know kind of analyze and just kind of chat to each other a little bit about all of our stories. And I, I think mine's a little bit different in that I was I, I don't know if it was the environment I was from, but um, I think mine was typically a little bit later than what most people's is. Although around about sixteen when I started to play with the first team at the club I was at, the professional club I was at, I felt, I knew mm-hmm. I felt different to a lot, uh, to a lot of my teammates, but I, I didn't really have anything to comprehend what that difference was. You know, I, I'd, I'd meet a lot of girls, you know, at that age and my teammates and my friends, you know, they would typical, you know, schoolyard stuff that, you know, they come back and talk to each other about it. And I used to sit down and think, I mean, it was all right, but it wasn't like these guys are describing it. But I mean, it was, you know, it was okay. Um, and I think that was the first first era of my life where I started to think, I don't know why, what is that difference? But again, I couldn't really comprehend what I was because I didn't know any different. Um, and also, you know, the environment I, I came, I grew up in, I think the word gay was, it was known to me as a negative slur before I really knew what right. the actual conversation of it, of it was. So I didn't really have, um, you know, when I looked around, I didn't really have any examples of people I resonated with in the community. You know, there weren't many, represent, weren't many examples of representation in sport, or just even, even in media in general at that time. So, you know, I, I'd see somebody on television in a surf opera who was, who was in the community but was, you know, a little bit different to myself. And, again, it just left me a little bit confused, really, about who I was because I couldn't really resonate with, you know, certain people that I would see. So I think around about 15, 16, I started to understand I was maybe a little bit different. But it weren't until, um, you know, mid early 20s that I started to consider, oh, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm gay or, you know, maybe that's the thing what's been kind of digging at me for, for the, all these years. Right. Were there any any um, role models at all that you saw as, as you were you know in that kind of questioning and not knowing stage? I, the, the reason I ask is my perception. You know, I look at a lot of film in America and you know independent films, and a lot of them tend to rely on gay stereotypes, which you are obviously not a stereotype um, yourself. But in a lot of the European representations, I, I think they're more dimensional, um, where they're not so stereotypical, but they depict gay people. Or did any of those speak out to you, or you resonate with them when you when you saw them? Well, I, probably not. In all honesty, I think like now we have a lot more representation from different types of characters and personalities within the community in media. I think now you see, you know, so many, so many more examples of just different types of LGBTQ people, um, and so I think it's a lot healthier now. There's a lot more of a broader representation of the community. But for, for myself, growing up, 
you know, I, again, I, I didn't really have anyone around me in any industries yeah. that I looked at and thought, you know, maybe maybe I'm just like him or maybe maybe the way he is, that's who I am. I, I didn't really have that. So, again, it just kind of left me really confused, um, you know, to my own identity growing up. You know, it was, And I don't think it was healthy as well, to be honest, because, like I said, you know, the word gay was just had such a negative connotation, especially within sport, that, you know, it was the last thing I really wanted wanted to be at the time. It was, you know, that, which made me bury it even more. I think. Whereas now it's, right. you know, I love I love all of myself now, and I, I love that part of myself. It's, you know, it's almost like my superpower now. But at the time, you know, it was my worst fear. I think. Yeah. No, I totally totally relate to that. Um, so in 2015, something really bad happened to you, and um, ended up. <laughs> with a skull fracture and a brain hemorrhage. Can you tell us what happened and, and how did you deal with that? Yeah, well, to be honest, I always, I always describe this as um, my, my, a beautiful nightmare because it was a nightmare. I definitely don't want to go through it again. Um, but uh, some amazing things came out of it. You know, I found, I found myself in the process. Um, you know, I, I lost my first true love, which was football. But again, I found myself. But I had a, a skull injury in a game. I clashed heads with someone. Um, we both jumped up to head the ball, and yeah, we just clashed, collided, and clashed heads. And I woke up in hospital. I'd already had surgery, and then I had another one, and I just had so many facial fractures, and uh, my brain was was hemorrhaged as well, and stuff. So it was a really it was a really rare injury in football, to be honest. It was more like a car crash um, injury. But, yeah, again, it was something that I look back on. Definitely wouldn't want to go through it again. But it was pretty pivotal um, in the sense of it was kind of a catalyst for me to really sit back and kind of start to learn to be okay with who I am and, and embrace who I am more. What What went through your mind, not only in terms of who you were, you know, in terms of your sexuality, but just, you know, your future. I mean, that, that, that had to have been a shock in a, in a, you know, a, a mere second, you know, your life changed. What, what did you, what was your pivot? What was your, you looking forward to your life going, okay, I, I can't do that now. This is where I need to go. Yeah. Well, I was quite lucky to be honest because as a footballer, I'd always been very entrepreneurial. I love, I love solving problems and creating solutions and, you know, being creative. So I'd always had certain ventures and things that I, w- I was building as I was playing. Um, but I'd already started a tech project that I'd, we'd already received funding for. So when I broke my skull, you know, my initial concerns were I just wanted to be able to see and breathe and, you know, the medical side of things, obviously, once it, once I'd, I'd gone through a lot of the surgery, then I had this delayed reaction of, all my days, I can't play football again. And it was really overwhelming. I just cried for about a week. Um, right. And then I kind of start, started to get a little bit more okay with it. And again, I, I started to think, well, maybe this is time for me to just learn to love all of myself, you know, not, I didn't want to wake up another single day to appease a group of people that I may or may not never meet. I was like, you know, I could have easily not survived this, and so I'm not going to live live my life to one else. So it was it was a really rough period, but actually, you know, I look back on it now and think it was, you know, there's parts of it that was actually quite necessary for me to mm-hmm. to get to where I am now, and I'm, I'm super happy and content now. So the, you know, the, I, when I came out of football, I was you know, I was fortunate that I already had something that had gained momentum and was a quite natural pathway, I think. That That's super inspirational, just, you know, to to go through something like that, because I think that is a truism for a lot of people's lives, that, you know, when they something bad happens, it is actually the close of a chapter and an opening of another one if, if they address it. In, in with the right set of energy and, and outlook. Um, I want to go into your entrepreneurial stuff. It is absolutely head spinning when you look at everything that you, you have either 
going on or have gone on or whatever. Um, uh, I've seen businesses from um, actually the one that that uh, looks really cool, um, although I don't know if they're still available, is the uh, the massager tool that um, uh, you is one of your businesses. Yeah. Um, you've got you've got all sorts of stuff. What are your favorites? It's like. Of all the businesses that um, you've uh, spearheaded there, uh, I, I don't know which one I would say would be my favorite, but I definitely know which ones I prefer working on. You know, again, I like solving problems and creating solutions. So sometimes I end up creating projects and bringing in funding and you know putting in the right personnel to run these projects that I typically don't have too many expertise in. So obviously building teams and creating in concepts and being funding is is what I like doing. The day to day operations for, from some of them, you know, I'm I'm probably not equipped to, to do a lot of it to be honest. So I like I like to hire a you know a CEO for some of them and just kind of step back and oversee the whole cohesion of the project. Um, but some of them are, I'm a little bit more hands on. So the you know the areas are very diverse, e commerce, which is you know product manufacturing, um, and B, real estate mobile technology, um, web development, videography. It's, it's so diverse. Um, but I, I quite like that. I quite like that every, you know, every day is very different because you get to you know, prioritize different things on different days. So I'm super lucky. I'm, I'm very blessed to be able to, you know, to do what I do and build and create and have license to, to kind of just solve, solve problems, which is you know, super fun, I think. Yeah, I, I can't see you having a boring day. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure I'm overstating that. I'm sure there's a, someday you wake up and you are bored, but, but you got so much, and it's fascinating stuff. It just, um, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it it really is exciting. Just the creativity um, behind it all is 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 super cool. So I, I want to take you forward to five years after you had what, what you called your beautiful nightmare and. Were, were kind of redirecting and orienting your life. Um, you came out publicly in June of 2020. What, what, uh, what led to that? It was it, well. It was kind of building for a couple of years up to that point. Because again, I you know after I broke my skull, I'd kind of built um, a new life for myself as a you know an entrepreneur or a business owner, and um, I'd kind of got to a stage of life where I. I was very blessed, and um, I think in some, in many ways, I was safe. I felt very safe to, you know, make decisions and not be dependent on anyone. You know, not no coworkers, no bosses, no friends, family, employers. There was nobody in my life that would have any, um, would had any say over the things I was doing or. Um, control in that way so I, I felt very really free and safe to just kind of say you know I, I feel privileged enough that I should tell my story to you know in hopes that other people can resonate with it and also you know get the conversation started in you know in a sport that I grew up thinking I was the only person or there was something wrong with me and so mm-hmm. you know I looked at it at that point and thought you know as a business owner now I'm, I'm constantly around people who are different why in sport which is also a business is the no representation of there's no examples you know it's been over 30 years since someone from the uk had publicly come out as gay in my sport and so you know at that point i thought yeah i thought you know this has been too long i want to affect change i want to you know be a catalyst for for people to kind of look you know some someone who is visible um who you know has gone on to do okay and you know, kind of look at that and think, well, I can resonate with him a little bit. Maybe that's who I am. And and, and also just be a, a safe space. You know, I've been really privileged to, to facilitate some other players to come out and support other players and just kind of be the guy that I felt like I needed when I was a bit younger, you know. So super fulfilling for me, you know, full circle. And, and what was the, the process like? Did your family know? Did your friends know? Or... Did you did you kind of come out to the entire whole world at the same time? Well, no. So my my business partners were the only people that knew. My my a lot of my friends and family and 
um, yeah. in a circle, really, was, was also quite oblivious at that point. But, again, I'd, I'd kind of done things for people in a way which I almost semi-thought I was bribing them, you know, into if I do this for them or I buy this or I build this, you know, they're going to be okay with me. And I came out and, that, and now I realize I didn't, I didn't need to do any of that. Um, you know, it was just my way of justifying it, I think. But, um, no, they didn't, they didn't know. And, again, my I tell this to some of the people that, you know, speak to me now about it, who, you know, reach out and say, I'm struggling or I want to talk to someone. And my, my experience and my the time when I did it, it was perfect for me. You know, there's no rush. I always tell people this. There's no rush. You don't have to do it on anyone else's terms. But I have got to a stage of life where when I actually did it, I wasn't asking permission. I wasn't asking my, my mum or my brothers or my friends, are you okay with this? Or, you know, are you still going to accept me? Or is it is it cool? I, I, I wasn't asking them. I, I made it really clear, you know, I've, I love you, so I want you to be a part of my life going forward, but I'm not asking you if you're okay with this because only I have the power to validate myself. As much as I love you, I validate myself, so I'm telling you because I want you to be a part of my life going forward, and this is who I am. It, and so I think I was ready to have the conversation in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a bit of a shock. It was a bit of a shock, to be honest, uh, to you know a lot of people who are, my inner circle, friends and family, I think they usually say that your mum knows. Um, and my mum had no idea. So I, to be honest, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have too much of an idea until a few years prior to that. So, yeah. Right. Uh, well, and it, it makes you feel better. My, my mom didn't know either. <laughs> my, okay. <laughs> I had no clue. So, yeah. So you and I are in the same boat. Yeah. It's like we both surprised moms. But, um, so what was the reaction? Where, where, did they rally around being supportive? And I mean, I actually I really admire the fact that they didn't need to, that you were holding your own key on that. But um, but even with that, what was their reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, they were, they were very good with it. And like I said, it was they, – they know better than anyone, so I'm pretty headstrong. So, you know, if I – if I tell you something, you typically they know. Okay, you know he's, he's not making this up. Or this, this is something he struggled with, and yeah, they got behind me, and they, they was they said, you know, we we love you regardless. And I had amazing support. I'm very, you know, I know it's not always that simple, and it's not that easy for for a lot of people. And again, I know I was very privileged to do it at the time I did it. Um, some people are a little bit younger, and they're dependent on the parents and things, you know. So it's a lot, a lot more difficult for some people. But, I was very fortunate. My teammates, my old coaches, players I played against, you know, owners of clubs I'd been at, everyone who was around me, business partners, investors, was all super supportive. And so, yeah, just I think it gave me a little bit more confidence for the one piece of me that um, I was always a little bit self-conscious about. So, yeah, it helped me. It helped me step into my my truth. I think. Right. And when you came out publicly, did you have a kind of public communication plan in terms of coming out or just let it kind of trickle out on its own? No, so at the time, um, my management, which uh, is based in, in L.A., um, he actually represents a lot of LGBTQ athletes and he's an amazing um, storyteller and and he's just a huge advocate as well. He's, he's done amazing work in that space with the, with the Trevor Project and um, you know various other LGBTQ-related support networks. So he he had a great understanding of the environment, um, and he you know was really instrumental in in telling that story and being able to affect change for a whole host of athletes who have come after that. You know we've been able to support and you know bring to the forefront to be more visible so it was kind of pre-planned by them um obviously i was in singapore and was kind of in lockdown as well at the time so it was a little bit of a overwhelming period but yeah it was it all went you know better than i could have ever imagined and something that i look back on and think i really should have done that you know 10 years sooner but i probably weren't ready to any sooner i don't think well, I want, and I did want to ask you something about that because, um, you know, in as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've we've had some really incredible conversations on this show 
um, in the past, um, boy, I'm going to say two months, um, just for whatever reason, uh, the the themes have kind of lined up that way where um, last week we had um, Skylar Baylor, who is a transgender swimming athlete, um, you know, one of the first to come out in that space. Um, the week before we had Leo Baker, who, you know, first came out in um, skateboarding. And a few weeks ago we had Brian Ruby, who is, um, you know, one of the only, or I think he's the only current professional baseballer who is out. And um, in all of your stories, there's one real common thread of facing the sport, and this is in, in your material as well, that um, you each thought you had to sacrifice who you were in order to play the game um, that, that you were identified with. Um, and I know you, you kind of mentor a lot of people in sports. How, what is that? feel like? What is the thought process and um, what do you counsel people to get over that or through that? Yeah, it's a tough one because obviously you grow up just, I, I don't know, I think things are starting to change slowly but I think you, you, we've grown up seeing change in LGBTQ norms um, throughout different industries and I think a lot of it comes down to toxic masculinity really when, when we're looking at the male side of sports. I think you know, males used to go off to war and women was expected to stay home and cook and look after children. And, you know, these gender norms we look at in society, I think being really redefined over the years in, you know, many different areas, you know, politics, um, uh, music, fashion, film, business. I think sport is we're the last place where we really yet to redefine the roles of a man, you know, a male and a female. And so I think mm-hmm. these expectations of, you know, what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman and how that negatively or positively affects you as an athlete or your ability to perform your job, whatever that, whatever that is. I think these misconceptions are something that we're still really trying to chip away at. And so, you know, I'm quite passionate about, you know, being as involved as I can be in, you know, trying to really just redefine these things and break down these stereotypes. Because obviously people within the community, you know, your identity or your, you know, masculinity or femininity is, is no way linked to our identity. I know some of the most feminine straight guys and I equally know some of the most masculine gay guys, but I also don't think mm-hmm. that being the most masculine gay guy gives you any benefit to perform as an athlete or the most masculine straight guy. You know, I think your ability to perform is not dictated by these things. And so I think there's, again, just being these misconceptions that I think have really held us back and myself included, you know, I used to think I was more, I was less of a man because of this thing that I had that was buried inside me. And if people knew about this, they'd use this against me, you know, to, to say that I was less able to perform my job as an athlete. Whereas, you know, we know vulnerability is courageous which is, you know, these things, it's strong to be raw and vulnerable, right? But we think, you know, showing emotion is weak as a man. Oh, this is what we've been told over the years. If right. you show your emotion or you talk about, talk about your feelings, that means you're weak. And it means you're, you know, more feminine as such or less able to perform as an athlete. So I think on the male side, we've probably got, a, you know, a lot of work to do in trying to chip away at these stereotypes of, you know, toxic masculinity. And, and I think then you can start to ease into people being more receptive to being gay or just, again, just learning more about what it is. And it doesn't make anyone any less able or more able to perform as an athlete. But, you know, I grew up thinking it was it was something that would be a hindrance. Yeah, I, I think everything you just said is so important, just seriously so important it, because I think – Toxic masculinity is infused in so many subtle ways and overt ways. And, um, you know, it, it, even in a lot of discussions nowadays around trans athletes, there is sort of this background of misogyny and, and toxic masculinity that, that are, in other words, people whose genders, you know, they're transitioning. And that's what kind of gets challenged is some things that are, being held 
because of attitudes of misogyny are being held because of, of protecting the, um, you know, toxic masculinity milieu, if you will. Um, and uh, you right. know, that it threatens that. So, yeah, no, I think every, everything you're saying is, is so important. And thank you for being, you know, a courageous leader um, to, to address that. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to um, your foundation, the Thomas Beatty Foundation. Um, what, what is the foundation and how did you get that started? Well, so this is something that we're, we're in, the, in the process of doing now because I've actually been doing a lot of um, consultancy, helping a lot of Premier League football clubs um, create pipeline strategies um, to be just more conducive, to, you know, as, as the, the sport, the business of sport, you know, the staff, the fans, the players, the coaches, how can we make these environments more open, more conducive, more uh, welcoming for people to just embrace their identity, really. So when a lot of clubs started to reach out to me, I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to do as much as I could with the time I have around the things I'm already doing. You know, my time is super – everyone's time is valuable, but the things I, I work on and build, you know, these are my priority. But, again, this is something I'm very passionate about. So I wanted to kind of set up a structure which allowed not only – uh, players to kind of get support from myself and maybe other resources within there, but also for it to kind of be a full cycle in that for my time, you know, the compensation of my time to help create these pipeline strategies, strategies and solutions with clubs, this goes back into that and then, you know, more resources are added because the reality of it is a lot of people reach out to me for support, um, just like I would have loved to do when I was younger. Um, and I don't always get to get round to everyone because there's just so many messages and it's quite hard to pick through them to decipher which ones are people who are, you know, looking for support and which mm-hmm. ones are just, you know, thirsty, <laughs> gay people reaching out for <laughs> other things. I try to, you know, I have to decipher these thousands of messages. Um, and I'm only one person, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, so... I think you right. have to build something with a bit more structure that has some more resources and can, you know, support people on a bigger level. And so this was kind of, you know, why we started to look at building something a little bit more official. Again, a lot of clubs, when you're working with a lot of, you know, Premier League football clubs, how you create this is really important for well, trust, reliability, um, and also, you know, just kind of, again, allows me to to kind of put these, to put resources back into the community and to supporting people in a way which, again, I, I felt like I really could have used when I was playing. Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, well, let me, I've got a couple of questions. That, uh, what is the, um, the is, is there a set of services that the foundation offers? Is it is it structured in that way or is it, more um, seeking to, like, through grants, financially support, you know, more hands-on organizations? Yeah, so the, the plan is that, we're, you know, things like scholarships, we want to we donate scholarships to LGBTQ athletes. And, and even if these athletes are not in the community, you know, I want them to sign contracts because they'll uphold the values of being a positive ally. Because I think one of the things that I look at now on, you know, I think people within the LGBTQ community are we're biased about the fact that we 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 feel like we we're not we don't think we're biased, but on an outside perspective, you know, it's looked upon as obviously I want to fight for equal rights for my community, and obviously I think I should be respected in the same way anyone else should be. We should, but it's biased. Right. But I think we, you know, the real. Um, power is in looking at allies, in looking at people who fight for the cause who are not in the community. I think this is where you start to change hearts and minds. Um, and so I think it'd be really cool to, you know, facilitate athletes to go, you know, to school, to get an education, to do what they love doing, and to know that that was facilitated or supported by a group that they are maybe not a part of, but will go on to speak well about, will advocate for, will, you know, will fight on behalf of um so the goal is to kind of 
you know, again, create more visibility, representation, as well as supporting athletes who are suffering violence and creating opportunities for LGBTQ athletes. I want to do the same for allies who will be expected to uphold these, you know, these values um, and these, what I think would be standard guidelines of being just a positive ally and role model for others to follow as well. Um, in working, do you find a lot of um, closeted players reaching out to you? I, I know uh, in one of our previous guests, um, Brian Ruby uh, talked about how when he came out in baseball that there were quite a few gay currently playing baseball players that reached out to him quietly. They're not out. They're not going to come out. But, um, you know, he was able to sort of behind the scenes lend support. Are, are you finding that um, to any large degree um, for yourself? Yeah, t- tons. Tons, to be honest, which is why, like yeah. I said, it's why I, I probably, it's, you know, really got to a point of saying, you know, if I want to do more for this community, I want to help more, I probably need a little bit more resources than just me. And also, you know, I'm not fully qualified to deal with some things that I'm not the people in my community need. I'm not a psychologist and I don't, you know, there's certain things I'm not skilled or trained in, to be quite honest. You know, I know mm-hmm. the mental anguish and trauma, what you, what it can be like when you live these two lives. You know, you feel like you need to bury a piece of yourself. So, you know, when some people reach out, you know, the some are going through things that I'm really not fully equipped to be able to provide. I can provide support from my lived experience, obviously, and which is what I, you know, I enjoy doing and I enjoy connecting with people who, who find comfort in, you know, resonating with my story, which is great. But the reality of it is some people have had a harder time than others. Um, and so, yeah, I think being able to, again, just add more resources or more, more part in the way of experienced, uh, skilled, you know, people who can provide these services, I think is, is a great, a great addition. But yeah, there's, there's tons, not just in football, obviously, I'm not sure if you're aware of Hig Roberts. When I came out, Hig was a, a U.S. Olympian skier, and Hig reached out to me, and I built a good relationship up with Hig. Um, and then I connected him with my management, and Hig came out, and he affected a huge change um, within his sport in skiing. He was one of the first in his sport, and yeah, affected a lot of change in that environment, which was which was super cool. And then obviously Josh Cavallo, who's a footballer, he reached out to me, and did the same with Josh, um, Jake Daniels in the UK, spoke to Jake before he came out, Lloyd Wilson, who's a referee in Scotland, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of examples of professional athletes, not just in football, but who have reached out to, to myself and we've helped support in some way and they've, they've come out publicly, but the reality of it is a lot of people don't want to come out publicly. Some people just want support and they just want to talk to someone, you know, who understands mm-hmm. some of the things they're going through, right? So I think the first thing I realized was a lot of people just want support. They just want to talk to someone who can empathize with some of the things they're feeling or going through and just kind of help learn to be more at ease or more comfortable with who they are. You know, coming out is the end part of that and it's a bonus, but it's actually not the most important thing. You know, when someone reaches out, they, they're really just looking to talk to someone and, and that makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, like I said, there's been a lot in different sports, and I've I've actually really enjoyed it. To be honest, I've really enjoyed. It's been quite comforting for myself to know, you know, I'm, yeah, I weren't alone all these years. So there, there was other people. I was just oblivious to it. Yeah, well, and I think that's part of it is that when you're not out, and um, you're you you, it, it's ironic because even though no one knows about you for whatever reason, when you're not out, you also don't know about other people. It's like the coming out almost right. opens the door that you get to see who's actually there, um, right. which is just sort of a little bit of a strange paradox. But, um, yeah, it's what what would you – what change would you like to affect over kind of the sports organization, you know, the promoters, the, the team owners, the, you know, the people who are the – real power brokers of, of the various sports? What, what would your message be to them? Well, I think now, um, to be honest, a lot of them are, are starting to take it serious. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's late on in the game, I will say that. My sport's 
the weekly football and we look at the, you know, the biggest league in the world, the English Premier League, a lot of them now are starting to to look at EDI really as a as a serious thing. You know, they're starting to employ head of EDI for the first time, a lot of them. You know, and these are multi billion dollar companies. And you know, as a as a multi billion dollar corporation in any other industry in the world, if you don't have an EDI department, I mean it, it it tells its own story about you, right? And so I think as mm-hmm. professional football clubs, for a long time, it's, we've avoided it, or we've just kind of disregarded it or looked over it. But a lot of them now are looking at, you know, EDI seriously. And, and when I say EDI, I mean specifically the, the pillar of LGBTQ within that. Because um, right. I think it, often it has been, I think often it has been swept under the rug, you know, the LGBTQ element of sport, or as a major pillar in EDI. Um, but I think they're starting to now really look at it seriously and, you know, and really want to do, to change, not just to tick boxes. Cause, you know, I think there's always a tendency for when people reach out to me to kind of think, well, are they just kind of looking at that as a, a box ticking exercise? But, but honestly, now I think, you know, a lot of them are, are really taking it seriously and actually want to change. But I do think, you know, it's, an ongoing process you know when we look at football it's not something that's going to be solved overnight but it is something that you know it needs work doing and the reality of it is you know a lot of kids especially think they're better off dead than for the world to know who they are and when they start to see more examples of athletes in sports that they respect or look up to who are you know who are visible lgbtq athletes or allies it gives them license to kind of know that, you know, they're valid and they're worthy and, you know, they're just as, they're just as much equal as, you know, anyone else from any other community. And I think that's really important. So, you know, I think now, again, these football clubs are starting to take it seriously and really look at this as a, a life-saving exercise, not only just, you know, for the business of sport, it's, it's it's necessary. It's been neglected for a long period of time. So I think in sport, we, in general, we need to do more, and we need to again break down these these boundaries of toxic masculinity and these gender norms within society. But I don't think that's just football's responsibility as well. I think that's you know, for many of our areas, we need to start looking at that as well. But for football, I think to create these pipeline strategies to to be more conducive is I think is a great place to start because hopefully we'll start to see in the next 12 18 months more people coming out and you know again more visibility and representation is is good for us right right no absolutely and and just for um, listeners who don't know EDI is equality diversity and inclusion um, you know and important important initiatives um, you're located in Florida now, correct? Well, I, I do six months in Singapore, which is where a lot of my businesses are registered. Um, and typically four months in Florida and, yeah, and a few months in the UK doing some work. But um, we can't be doing no more than six months in the US because I don't want no US tax. <laughs> I don't want no US tax. <laughs> me, so. Four to six months well, what, is all we get here, yeah. Yeah, Florida is kind of a hotbed right now of of uh, all sorts yeah. of pretty much the opposite <laughs> of EDI, if you want. What what yeah, is what know, is right. what are your thoughts on that? Your your what are you seeing there around you in Florida? To be honest, I I, I arrived twelve hours ago, <laughs> so I've not seen too much. <laughs> not to be honest, I've not seen too much. But no. <laughs> I haven't seen too much. I just got off a flight from Singapore. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it is – I know it's a state which is um, it's traditionally not been very, very kind to the LGBT community. And, you know, as much as the LGBT, LGBTQ community in Florida is, um, is prominent, there's a, there's a big unity here. You know, the political side of it obviously doesn't – I don't think – reflects um a lot of that their views but yeah i mean i'm i'm still learning about these things as a as a british citizen and a singapore resident um who spends you know a portion of the year here in in america in florida i'm still learning about some of these things and just shaking my head in disbelief 
the more I learned, to be quite honest. But, um, yeah. It's it's actually ironic because everything you're talking about and everything you stand for and the movement you are making um, uh, along with others in the various sports is is actually very monumental. I mean, it's like I come from a time where sports was just absolutely, you know, no LGBTQ zone. I mean, it was the the two were just as incompatible um, conceptually as you could could be and seeing the inroads you guys are making is just uh, absolutely astounding. And then to see something like Florida and Texas where they're pulling out these things that are just going so backwards all of a sudden is just, you know, such a weird dichotomy um, to look at. Yeah. Thomas, yeah. we're down to our last four minutes. What, what, and you have so many things going on. What have we not talked about that we, we should be bringing up? <laughs> I've, I've, we've covered a lot in there, to be honest. I don't know. Um, I don't, there's, yeah, there's nothing really that I'm too specifically want to say. Although I, you know, again, I, I, I want to say thank you for having me on also and, um, allowing me to share my story and for something that for many years caused me, you know, a lot of trauma and it, um, it caused me quite a lot of pain, I would say, as well. So it's quite nice to, to be able to talk wholeheartedly with, you know, um, in a position of loving every piece of myself and turning something that was painful into purpose. Um, so, yeah, I'm grateful to people like yourselves to give a platform to others, to be able to share them stories, uh, well, to allow well, them to be more visible, I guess. Yeah, the, the pleasure is ours because, first of all, it's like I, I'm thrilled for what you do, grateful for what you do, grateful for who you are, um, and especially grateful for where you're, you're taking this and the momentum that you're, you're creating is, is huge and wonderful and, and exciting. I mean, there, to your point, you alluded to this, but this is really the point. I mean, a lot of your work ultimately will be saving lives because that, that, that will be the end effect is that you will inspire people. You will, you know, move them to a point where they can accept themselves. They can, you know, pick up similar motivation, create their lives. And, you know, it, it just keeps on giving, you know, people see them and they get inspired and, and, and it goes on and on. Um, what, what website or what place can people go to, especially to find out about the foundation and, and how they can, support you even further um we're still actually in the process of doing that because i am trying to, i might have to go to switzerland for the registration of this so it's still not officially registered to be, become a charity as an english citizen and a resident of singapore who's spending time in the u.s the complexity of of that setup um is a lot more difficult than, than i'd imagined to be quite honest yeah. um so it's still it's still in the process um but, yeah, I would say that would be coming in the next four to six weeks, I think. Great. So is, is IamThomasBD.com a good uh, reference point for folks? Yeah, I mean, there's um, my website, my socials, um, and there's quite a lot of things on my businesses on there as well and stuff. So I think there's probably a good mix of things on, on my site or if, you know, my socials if people ever want to reach out for whatever reason. You know, there's... Is them there? Um, I think one of the one of the things I wanted to to just mention at the end, because I'm not too sure how sports centric um, you you guys uh, typically have been, um, but a lot of people always ask me, "Oh, why sport? Why are you? Why is it? Why is it only athletes, or LGBTQ athletes, who matter?" And and firstly, I always obviously they, they don't matter. Anymore. But it, it comes from a place of, you know, um, authenticity because I was an athlete, and so I understand right. that process. But I also think sport is such an amazing place to start these conversations, you know, because we sit Perfect. around. Perfect. And table Thomas, and we've, we're sorry to interrupt. We've got to go. We've got literally ten <laughs> seconds. Thank you so much. And you are awesome. You're an awesome sports person, and and. Uh, uh, just appreciate everything that is part of your identity. Um, I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Brody. And we will be back again next week with another really fantastic show. 
Tune in and find out what that will be, and we'll talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.